Welcome to the Sons of Technology Clubhouse. Ditch your fear at the door, take a risk, and enjoy the ride with your hosts, Joe Marquez and Kyle Anderson. Excellent. Welcome to the Sons of Technology podcast. We're super excited to be bringing this here to you today. I'm Joe Marquez. I am a Google innovator and trainer and just all around, you know, EdTech Tosa for uh, Central California. So I'm super happy to be here as one of your hosts today. And I am Kyle Anderson, a special education teacher in Carson City, Nevada, living in Reno, Nevada, which is really rainy right now and the mountains are getting pounded with snow. I'm a uh, Google certified level one and two. I'm a Paradex certified coach and um, also super excited to be here. Uh, I'm Corey Coble. I am a seventh grade science teacher up in Sacramento, California, just outside there in Roseville. Uh, I am a Google trainer and uh, just having a lot of fun. Excited to be here. Excellent, Corey. Thank you for being here. And and we are we're sitting around our Sons of Technology table here at the Sons of Technology Clubhouse, and we really want to talk about what we're going to be doing here in these next few episodes. So we decided that we wanted to create kind of a trilogy of episodes for you uh, in these coming weeks. And so this is episode one of the Equity Trilogy. And um, for episode one, we wanted to talk about a small chat um, about a big problem. And it's a problem, if you've ever been a teacher in the classroom, um, that we've all faced, and, and that's class sizes. And you know, when, when you are you know, you know, up there in front of students, you really want to make sure that you are resonating with them. You really want to make sure you're connecting with them. And you know, sometimes when you're staring at a vast sea of 40 students, you kind of think, can I really connect with all these 40 students at one single time? And if these class sizes keep growing, is that going to affect that relationship and that connection? And what would be different if we went backwards? Instead of adding more students every year, 40, 41, 42, we actually started reducing these class sizes. Um, I once had a class of 32, and I thought it was an amazing adventure. I'd never thought I could have a class size of 32 before. But then as I travel around you know, the different parts of the United States, I see that classes of 32 are the norm in a lot of places. And so I really want to start a conversation of what is a proper class size, or is there an actual number where you can put a proper class size on it? Well, I will say that I've been on both ends of the spectrum with class sizes. I've had a class as small as nine students before, and there was advantages and disadvantages of that that I can dive into a little bit. But I also remember my first year teaching about 13 years ago, having a class of 52 where I didn't have enough seats for the kids in the room, I actually had to clear a spot on my teacher desk where I had two students with chairs sitting at that desk. And that caused all sorts of issues. But there was also some great things that happened in that big class as well. Yeah, I've had like as high as 42, uh, 43 in the classroom. And, you know, it's, it's above what the you know district really wants us to have. But, you know, it's... Uh, is it yeah a sea of kids and you know not enough supplies um, trying to manage all that it's uh it's tough. but I've been down to like you know 23 24 so I've been on both sides too as well you know and that's you know that's an interesting question too because Corey we we are science teachers by trade right yeah and so you know we we we're not only you know having the students you know interact and 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 create but we're also having them participate in labs oh yeah and we have a lab with 40 kids 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember there was one time I was doing a lab uh, on, on combustion and um, I was having actually stations all around and we're talking about not, not only combustion but how heat can affect materials. And so I had Bunsen burners on one whole side of the room and I had hot plates on another side of the room. And I'm like, good Lord, if these kids were not <laughs> properly trained, this entire room could go up. Yeah, it's a safety right? thing, and, and you can't watch everybody all the time, too. So exactly. it's a lot of trust. And the problem with that is, right, is, you know, you're trying to create these experiences for the kids, right? Mm. And, and I know it's an experience because they tell me. They tweet about it. They go, this was a great lab, and they take pictures, and they do awesome things. Yeah. But if anything went wrong, we would be to blame. Yeah. The teacher would be to blame. Yeah. You didn't properly monitor them. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's not like we weren't preparing. We weren't getting them ready. It's not like we weren't checking the equipment. It's there's 40 kids in here. And when we want to create that experience, the class size can hinder that. Right. They're not going to get the same experience because you're too busy over there helping the, you know, three knuckleheads that are, you know, throwing the bus burns at each other. And then the 20 other kids that are trying to learn something from the experience. They don't have you to, you know, guide them. And they may not get the most out of that, uh, you know, lesson or activity that you had planned so hard to, to do. Absolutely. And, and you know what? Um, and, and Kyle, I'm going to bring you into this because you're a special ed teacher right now. I, I hear a lot of teachers say that there should be uh, equality across the board in class sizes. Meaning, you know, if an English class has 32, then a science class should have 32, then a history class should have 32. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and that equality... In, in our minds at the moment sounds, oh, that sounds pretty good. But Kyle, could you imagine a class that, that you're teaching with 32 students? Oh, it'd be absolute insanity because right now, um, as a co-teacher in various social studies classes, my class sizes are averaging around 25. And in that class of 25, I typically have seven to 10 students that have an IEP that I'm working with. And then, but, you know, even getting outside of IEPs, you know, because I'm a firm believer that every student should have an IEP. I mean, it's just not feasible right now in the, the climate that we have educationally in this country. But eventually, someday, I'd love to be able to where every student could be, have a plan to individualize their education. But right now, with that class of 25 and, you know, seven to 10 students that, you know, I'm working with on a, a more one-on-one -on -one basis, anything beyond that would just it would be really hard to do. And then on top of that, I have my own caseload and I don't see all my own students from my caseload in all my classes. I think right now I have a caseload of 17 or 18. I think I only have like three of them in an actual class where I'm seeing them every day or every other day. The other kids, I have to take time out. I got to duck out of my classes or I have to take my prep time to go check in on other students and work with them on their goals and everything. So you know, when you're talking about class size being the equity thing, I just that to me, that's not an accurate uh, description of what equity should be, because different classes, I mean, I, th they should be weighted differently. But I mean, I, I know that's going to sound kind of bad um, where some classes you may be thinking like, oh, well, that do, are you trying to say then? that my class isn't as important so I should have more kids in it. I'm not saying that, but like you guys as science teachers, trying to run a lab with 40 students is a lot different than say, for example, a PE class trying to play basketball or floor hockey or something like that with 40 students. So um, at that point, you know, you're talking something totally different if you want to talk about equity. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, and Cor, uh, uh, Cor, go ahead. 
Oh, no, I say I, I totally agree with that. It's uh, you know, it's one of those things like you know, I love the idea of having every student with the individual program, but you know, it's so hard to you know one remember all their names and then try to you know individualize every instruction. I mean, that's that's a that's a challenge. No, absolutely, and 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 you know, playing off of that challenge and and playing off of what Kyle said, you know, it's you know the 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 term equity and equality. Uh, kind of get inter intermixed with one another, oh, yeah. and sometimes we don't understand the difference between the two, and and so you know I, I wanted to bring up the fact, Kyle, that you're 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 right on that that uh, you know making sure every class size, no matter what subject, is the same. That is not equity. You're absolutely right. That's equality, right? And so when we're talking about class sizes being the same across the board, we're talking about all classes being equal with the equal number of students. But then that rolls into the problem. Of equality, and and it's exactly what Corey, what you were saying about you know the you know it's, it's sometimes it feels inequitable when as a science teacher we have 40 kids, and then the school mandates 30 in a math class, right? It's yeah. like math class you get 30, anything above 30 we're gonna have to you know get a new teacher. Science you have 40, and if we have to shove in 41 or 42, you're gonna have to figure out a way to deal with it. And to me, when I first heard that, I was aghast. I was like, what? How can math get, you know, get, a, I, I thought, I, in my mind, better treatment as an educator. I was like, how can they get a better treatment in, in, in that subject than I in science? And uh, what, what I was told, and I, did, I don't, at this point, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe this should be the reason, but I was told because the math scores uh, are, are more important on the, on the state test than the science scores. They're, they're weighted differently. Yeah. And for me, that doesn't pass muster for a reason. Now, if you're talking about the students need more differentiation or the students need more individual instruction by a math teacher, then I can start understanding the, the equity needed for that smaller class. But for me, the test scores argument does not fit. Another thing that I heard from a teacher was um, in English classes. And, and they say, you know, English classes should be lower because we have to read all these essays and grade all these essays and give feedback in a reasonable amount of time. And so if, the, if, if you have a 10 student difference, 30 in English class and 40 in science, the, the English teachers tell me, well, that's 10 less students we have to grade and it gives us more time to focus on the 30. And so they feel that that's more equitable for them to get 30 and for us not to get 40. But then Corey, they don't get to hear from us and they don't get to talk about the dangerous yeah. parts. They yeah. don't get to listen to the labs, right? We have, there's writing in all subjects. Oh yeah, I mean, have you seen some of those labs? Effort. Middle school students can write. I mean, those those labs are intense sometimes. If you you know do a good job, it's a fun lab. They write a ton of stuff. You know, research reports. I do that all the time in my classroom, and you know, I I can't read forty you know three page lab reports. You know, that's tough. No, it is. So, so you know, I think the conversation needs to be had, right, that we understand some classes need to be lower than others. Oh, yeah, I agree. And, and we, under, we also understand that some teachers, just by, just by their, uh, you know, just being just an awesome educator, can handle more students than others, right? But we have to make sure, you know, imagine there's like this bell curve. Where, where is, or, or you have two intersecting lines. Where does the number of students um, start to create a downward spiral in output from the students? 
Where does that happen? And, and I, I'm not convinced it happens the same in every subject or by every teacher. But we have to figure that out individually. Just like we want to give differentiation instruction to students, sometimes we have to differentiate how many students a, a particular teacher can handle. I just, um, you talking about the intersecting lines, the Sosta's brain in me is coming out and thinking about equilibrium price on supply and demand. And you're right, supply and demand for different go. goods. Different goods is different. Like, what is the equilibrium price? So the equilibrium price on, say, pork bellies, going back to that old, like, when you wake up in the morning, turn on the radio, the farm report, you know. So especially, <laughs> Joe, where you're from, I'm sure you heard that a lot on the radio as a kid. But, um, you know, I heard that a lot on my radio growing up where I grew up in Michigan. But um, you're talking about different products having different equilibrium prices and supply and demand being different. And you're right. It's the absolute – it's the same thing when you're talking about different subjects. And kind of going off that too, you know, you talk about math being more important than science, quote-unquote. Even within social studies, I had issues at times where I taught AP and then I had push-in classes with a co-teacher when I was a general ed social studies teacher where – I had two sections of AP classes, one of which was, say, nine kids, and then another was 13 kids, but then I have a push-in class of 32. So why can't we take those two sections of AP, put them into one? Those students don't need as much guidance because they're AP. Now, that, again, might sound wrong, you know, but those students don't need as much guidance as, say, students that have learning disabilities. So even with that extra teacher in the classroom with me, we struggled with 32 students trying to keep them on task and trying to meet their needs, whereas now I've got nine kids in one class, and frankly, just to be blunt and honest about it, it was really hard to motivate myself to write good lesson plans sometimes for that smaller class, especially because they were better students. You know, I wish I could have had just one section with those two classes all in one. It's not going to be any extra work having them in one class and having them as a bigger class. But if I then could have split that push-in class into two sections, I could have given those students a lot more individual attention. So now like that equality and equity debate really, I mean, just within the subject area um, can be addressed. Well, I had that in uh, science class uh, a couple years ago. They had an honors track. And so I had a class of like 12 or 13 honors kids in science. And then my Gen Ed, uh, two classes of Gen Ed science were just full up with kids. And I'm like, why can't we just, you know, get everybody together? Well, you have to do different lessons for the uh, honors kids. You have to challenge them a little. I was like, why can't I challenge them in a general ed classroom with other kids? And maybe they can see the, um, that work ethic, those, those unmotivated kids look across the uh, table and they're like, oh my gosh, that kid's making this building, this cool thing um, and learning so much. Why can't I do that? And so Corey, that is amazing. That's exactly what I have said. You know, like I understand the idea of an honors class, right? Oh, yeah, I do too. But in, in junior high, when you're getting kids to not only figure out who they are, right, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and figure out what they want to do and figure out how their body is working and why they're hungry all the time, right, <laughs> or why should we wear deodorant, right? <laughs> separating these kids based on what we deem as honors versus regular to me that starts creating this inequality because because you're taking away from those students uh, uh mentors yeah right i see that those honors kids they're they're smart right mm -hmm. they're, they're going to go off you give them a lesson they'll go off and figure it out on their own yep so I, I think something that a lot of these honors kids need 
is to learn how to connect with other students, mm -hmm. students that are not like-minded. I always say that you know students outside of class hang out with students um, who are like-minded, but in class they should be working with students who are not like-minded because that's how you work through problems. Exactly. And I think putting a student who is an honor student, quote unquote, in a lab with a student who doesn't see themselves as a science student, quote unquote, I think is an amazing opportunity to change the mindset of not only the student learning science, but the student who is, understands science, but can become a mentor now. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you can get kids from all different walks of life becoming <clears throat> friends with each other. Not by yeah. separating them out based on, you know, this is their intelligence. Yeah. But by bringing them together to show you, hey, you're going to be working with all types of people in this world. And we have to figure out a way to get them to work that way. So at the school that I was from, that's what that was my uh, argument, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was a class size issue because you're absolutely right. In the honors class, they were running 22, 23, 24 students. And to me, I'm like, wait a minute. The students who would be fine on their own get a smaller class. Yeah. And the students who are not fine on their own are stuffed to the rafters. To me, that logic didn't fit. Yeah. Right. And so I'm I'm so excited if you can hear it in my voice that you brought that up because yeah. you know when I was thinking about class sizes, that never occurred to me like those two those two ideas intersecting. But you're absolutely right. You know how? But but the the, the school told me they go, well, we can't get rid of an honors class, quote unquote, because the community would be an upheaval, right? Yeah. Some some parents think my student is an honor student; they have to be in an honors class. And so I, I told them, well, we have to have a, a talk with the community and let them know why we're getting rid of the honors and we're not getting rid of the rigor, though. Right. Right. Yeah. Because you're talking about, you know, your administration saying, well, you know, they need a differentiated instruction by something a little bit higher. OK, well, let's give it to those other students as well. Yeah. Yeah. When they work together, they'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, John Crippo, John Crippo says it all the time. You know, if you set the bar higher, those kids will try to go for it. And, you know, a little bit of movement up is always good in any level that they're at. Yeah. And I've also heard of, of schools before offering more, say, honors and AP classes just to make their numbers look good, too. So, you know, mm -hmm. where, oh, our school offered 50% more AP classes this year. Well, it wasn't necessarily that they offered it to more students. They just split it up and offered instead of one class of 18, they offered two classes of nine. But it you know, quote unquote, makes the numbers look good, which is, you know, not what I signed up for when I yeah, became no. a teacher. Well, I had one year my honors class was actually a, like three or four true identified honor students and the rest were what they considered high achievers, just good, hardworking kids. They may not have been able to solve, you know, multi-step equations in their head, but they were high achievers. They were good kids. And so they shoved them into this, you know, honors track to make that class fill up. I think one so the other classes would be like 60 kids, but you know, they, it was a struggle because, you know, you have these high achieving kids that have been identified as really, really honors, true honors kids. And then you have, you know, another level. So you have a two level class in there. You know what though? I'm not against that though, because, you know, going back to what you were just saying a, a few moments ago about how, like raising expectations, you take a student that may not typically be that honor student, but, you know, they are a hardworking kid, but they just have some struggles in areas. You throw them into that honors track and, you know, they may not be the A student in there, but 
I always used to tell my AP kids, you guys getting a C in this AP class is going to look much better down the road than you getting an A yeah. in the standard course. So, you know, building up that expectation, I think you're just going to get better results that way. Yeah. Our, you know, uh, and, and, you know we're, we're talking about, you know, class sizes, right? Um, and, and, you know, here in this in this podcast, we, we kind of like to bring up all sides of, of the topic. And I, I was actually on Twitter uh, following a few conversations about class sizes uh, preparing for this episode. And I, I saw an argument that, that somebody said that reducing class sizes uh, for achievement is a myth. So uh, that's, uh, that's what I saw. And they were saying that there, the, there's been no studies that have proven that lowering class sizes by three or four students significantly increases the amount of productivity or uh, test scores, right, uh, by the students in that class. And the argument from this was, you know, by reducing class sizes by four, four in each class, you're, you're needing to create another, another class out of this, I mean, you're going to have to take money somewhere. And they're like, well, if you take money from those classes to put it towards another class to lower the class sizes when you're not going to see a significant change in output from the students, then that money could be used elsewhere um, for, for better use, whether it's in SPED or, or in, in a variety of different places around the school. And so uh, here on this podcast, we like to bring up all different sides of the story. So I'd like to hear your guys' comments on that. Do you, do you think that that argument – is a reason to say, well, if there is no significant achievement, then maybe we should not even be worrying about class sizes. What's the um, sample size for that lack of evidence for the achievement, though? I mean, how many schools out there have actually, you know, sunk more money into lowering class sizes and studies have been conducted on that? I think the sample size is very limited when it comes to all that. So, um, I mean... Going back to what I said earlier about how I had 52 in a class um, the one year. Now, granted, by the time you know school got going and they leveled some classes off, it got down to 42. But still, that class, I guarantee, again, this was 13 years ago. I can't really remember. I guarantee that class did a lot worse than other classes I had that were more like 35 or 30 or something like that because I was able to, A, give more students in that class the attention that they deserved, not nearly as much as they could have if or I could have if the size was smaller, but also um, going back to what Corey was saying about, you know, grading, you know, 43 page essays or whatever. Did I put the time into grading each and every kid's assignments that I probably should have? No, because I had 42, 45 kids or whatever. And, you know, there's just so many, so many hours in the day at that point. Yeah. Um, as, you know, I, I'm just thinking about this whole you know, class size. I mean, I'm in a K-8 school, so I, I see all the way from kindergarten classes to the eighth grade classes. And, you know, I think there might be something to say about, you know, having a smaller class size in the lower grades where they really need that connection. Um, and then maybe in the upper grades they start to, you know, keep them a little higher and stuff like that. But, I mean, I would love to have lower class sizes in my classroom. But, you know, is it a myth? I, I'd have to I, – I don't know. Well, you see, I, I think when you when you start talking about class sizes and you try to equate it to achievement by some test score, right? Yeah. I think that becomes kind of ridiculous in my mindset because you're only looking at one facet of something. And I, I think teacher mental health is an issue as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, teaching is one of the only careers, right, where 
you you work seven days a week, and you know you're 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 not really getting paid for seven days a week, right? And and you're told by administrators, you know, you don't have to do work on the weekends. But every educator listening to this should be laughing, right? Because of course, if we want to make learning meaningful and be caught up on all the work, we have to be working on the weekends. So yeah. and, you know, it's it's kind of one of those untold truths about teachers, right? We have to constantly be working to keep up. And when you keep adding students, you're adding hours upon hours of of extra work on that teacher, but or you're removing meaningful feedback from the rest of the students so they don't have to be spending hours and hours extra. And so I, I think I think we should all be in agreement that that you know when you look at a statement like that, that lowering class sizes uh, is better uh, being a myth, I think we have to look at it as, uh, with a grain of salt, because I don't think they're looking at the proper attributes that that should be looked at. And and Kyle, I think you're a hundred percent. I don't know what kind of sample size they're looking at. Was it a single instance? Was it a, a variety? How long did they do this study? So those are the things you really have to look at and also be careful with when we are uh, restating these things, right? Because you know, if if you have people online that say that statement and then they have like some article that looks scholarly attached to it and you retweet that on Twitter, you're perpetuating that myth or you're giving life to this myth um, that, that isn't necessarily there. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring that up because I, I, I was complete in shock when I saw that tweet. And I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with, with all of you that, that you know, the, the study saying that the achievement of the students is not significant so we shouldn't uh, even worry about it. I was like, you know, any achievement increased by a student is wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't think you should be saying, ah, you know what, it wasn't that much extra, so we don't have to worry about it. I think that's that's an issue. But one of the things about us in, in Sons of Technology um, is that 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 one of our monikers is EDUs of innovation. I, I think one of the, the reasons that that our, our group is, is so uh, so tight knit is that 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 the uh, educators that join us um, really look at a problem and find a way to fix it. And in very innovative ways, and so I want to throw out here to the group, uh, and, and those of you listening um, right now as well, we'd love you to respond to us at Sons of Tech Edu uh, on Twitter with your responses as well. What can we do to make learning more meaningful and the experience better uh, by low by class size standards? What can we do as educators or in the educational system that can help this problem? Because money is an issue. Um, that we know and you know not only money for for extra teachers but but paying the teachers uh, a, a, a wage that that fits what they do is an issue as well in a lot of cases so what can we do to fix this problem in education well I think um, it stated very well right in the beginning the opening bumper to our podcast where we talk about ditch that fear and take a risk I mean it, Right now, you cannot do anything about your class size until more money comes in or laws change or whatever. You gotta you gotta work with what you got for the most part, and you yep. gotta take what you have and stretch as far as you can. So, I mean, you're gonna be scared to do stuff. You're gonna be scared to fail. Maybe, maybe not. So, but just you just gotta ditch that fear. You just gotta take a risk. If you fall on your face, tweak it or try something new. 
and um, just try to reach as many of those kids as you can um, using what you got and then just trying to, as the new podcast by Jake Miller says, you know, use some educational duct tape, you know, take some different Mm -hmm. things. Joe, you've been hacking stuff for years and um, tweeting that out and going to conferences, showing people how to take common tools and then use them in a multitude of ways. So you just really just got to ditch the fear, take some risk and try to just be as innovative as possible. Yeah, when people say, oh my gosh, how many students do you teach? You teach 100 plus a day. Um, I'm like, yeah, it's not a problem because I'm interested in taking that risk. I, I want to try new things. I'm willing to you know, learn how to use Google Forms and Sheets and you know all this you know technology. Um, whenever I do pre- presentations, um, the first uh, slide I show is the uh, scene from Indiana Jones where he's taking a leap of faith. And it's uh, uh, he's trying to get the... Um, going across this cavern and he just takes a leap of faith and it's a painted to look like the cavern, uh, but it's really a bridge. And so if you don't take that first step and take that risk and try new things, um, yeah, all you're going to be doing is just, you know, complaining about your class sizes, but let's do something about it. Let's try new ways. Let's make new lesson plans. Let's, uh, you know, try to find ways we can connect with our students in mass. No, I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that I have discovered, right, and, and you know, I, I know it's a shocker to everybody in the audience right now, but technology can help with that, right? I mean, you I, don't I, say. You know, years, years <gasps> back, yeah, Whoa. years back, um, I created kind of this, this idea of, 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 of how uh, we should be utilizing technology in the classroom, and I, I put every tech uh, kind of through this, this uh, filter uh, that I called the inspect, redirect, make correct filter. And, and the technology that I use in class um, during instruction should allow me to inspect student knowledge at any moment, no matter if there's 30, 40, 50 teachers, right? Yep. So through Pear Deck or through Nearpod or through Kahoot or through quizzes, whatever I'm using, I should be able to get instant analytics to see, is my class understanding the words coming out of my mouth, yep. right? And if they're not, I should be able to stop the lesson, stop the lab, stop what we're doing, and redirect them towards the right path. And then finally, because the technology is there, and because we catch it early, and because we give the feedback in a meaningful and timeful way in the moment of instruction, we give them a chance to make those corrections. Whether it's on their lab report that they're doing, on their essay that they're writing, or just in their mind, so they're not they're not solidifying the wrong way of doing something in their brain. Because we all know that once a student learns something, it's hard to, even if it's a wrong way of learning it, it's hard for them to turn back and go a different route. Yeah, um, Ryan Johnson at uh, FallQ, uh, not FallQ, uh, Monterey CLS, um, made a really nice uh, term, it's uh, autopsy data. And a lot of times in education we use autopsy data, which is uh, the, uh, you know, after the fact. Um, end of the year, oh, it was last year's student taking the test. We need instant feedback. We need that right away during class through like all those things you said, Joe, it's just like to have that instantaneous, hey, I need to tweak this. I need to add that. Oh my gosh, these students are getting it. Let's have move them over here. Um, we can't, we can't be working with autopsy data anymore. We have to work with this, you know, up to the minute, up to the second now data. No, I agree. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, we don't want to stop talking about the actual problem being too many students in a single class. But, be, be, but we shouldn't stop finding solutions uh, and assuming that it's not going to change. Right. And, and, and for me, technology has allowed me 
to still make learning meaningful, to still get the voice of those students who are in the back who don't have a voice. I always say voice of the voiceless. Technology allows for that to happen. So even if my class size is 40, I can still try in, a, in, a, in some kind of way to maintain a direct relationship with each and every one of those students and catch those who are falling behind, catch them during that falling behind like, and not in the autopsy data, like you said, yeah. after the fact. Yeah. Not at the Monday quiz, not at the, the, the semester checkpoint, during yeah. the fact. And I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there was one other idea that I had, and I know some people are going to roll their eyes at this, but once again, hey, you know, sometimes far outreaching ideas sound crazy at the beginning. But I, I've always thought, you know what, if, you know, like right now we are talking to each other for, from a vast distance, right? Corey, you're, you're yep. in Sacramento, Kyle, you're in, in, in Reno, and, and I'm, I'm here in the Central Valley of California, and, and, but we're still connecting and making a meaningful conversation, and we're still working with each other. And so I always thought, hey, why couldn't there be in your class uh, uh, a group A and a group B? And so group A's, you come to class on uh, Thursday, uh, Tuesday and Thursday, face to face. And group B, you're gonna do, you're gonna get a virtual class on 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 those days. And then group B, you're gonna be in class physically on Wednesday and Friday. And students on in group A, you're gonna be at home. And then Monday, we all come to class to make sure we all can connect with one another. That way you're getting that hybrid of, of in-class connection, but also that virtual computer connection as well, which a lot of companies are doing now today in this world. Um, but now you're, you're still creating a faux mini-class in that fashion. You're not having so many students at once to look after. And I know that's kind of a far outreaching idea, but I know a lot of districts already have a online school for yeah. their students. Right. So why not just mesh the online school with the physical school? And I think that could possibly at least be a, a temporary fix to this issue. And it wouldn't cost the district any more money to do this uh, unless you're talking about having to, you know, give those, those students devices um, and, and hotspots at home. Right. That's another equity uh, thing we'd have to talk yeah. about at a later date. But, you know, that's an idea that I came up with. And I know that could sound crazy to some. But, you know, for an issue of class size, I think it could be a possible uh, fix to it. Yeah, a lot of colleges are doing that now. I mean, they're, they're doing the online courses and getting teachers to make videos and, you know, stuff like that. So it's not – it is being done just at a higher level. So I, I don't think it would be a problem to go down to high school, middle school. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I have two master's degrees that I did online, and I've got a third one. I mean, finishing up in May, that is all online. And, you know, frankly, when people ask me, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, how do I not? At this point, I don't ever want to set foot into a classroom as a student ever again because, I mean, it's not for everybody. It, you definitely got to be self-motivated um, in order to do online courses. But I, we're starting to see some of that um, in the district where I'm at where some students are they're taking online courses because, you know, maybe they got to work instead to help support their family so we set it up to where they could take the online courses or you know we could use it as credit recovery where kids behind we can set them up in online courses and take care of it and you know there's still a physical teacher there to help them it's not just them you know interacting with the computer the whole time so it's, it's definitely something that has promise that i really think 
could lower class sizes and just um, narrow that gap uh, between equality and equity that we've been talking about now here for nearly half an hour. You know, I started doing uh, YouTube videos and just posting them on Google Classroom um, in the middle of a lesson. Uh, we were doing some spreadsheet stuff and the, they were struggling with something and I was like, I'll make a YouTube video. And that's what these kids know nowadays is to go to YouTube, go on the internet, find these you know, informational uh, places to help enhance or get caught up. Yeah, so, and I do, I do something very similar whenever we go over something. Um, just in the last few days, we were doing the causes of World War One, and I did a lesson using Pear Deck with the kids, and it took us about 30 minutes in class to do it. Once it was done, I just did a screencast. You know, it took me eight minutes just to rehash the whole thing. And I did it for two reasons. One, for the students that weren't there that missed class that day. Mm -hmm. And two, it really kind of sprung up when I had one of my students, actually one of my caseload students that I actually have in class, pulled me aside one day and said, you know, you kind of go fast in class and, you know, I can't really keep up. I said, well, would it help if I took that presentation and made a video for you. And she said, yeah, we can try that. And it's been working for her. So now if a student missed something in the live session of that, they can go back to that video and, you know, they can watch it anytime they want. They can stop it and pause and reflect and take notes, whatever they need to do. So, you know, I mean, and how much time did it take me to do that eight minute screencast? 15 minutes, you know, between yeah. the setting up, recording it, you know, doing a little bit of editing whatever it was. I mean, so it wasn't that much time out of my day to do that. And to me, it's just paying dividends with my students. Yep. And, 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 and we could all agree that Kyle, you, you wouldn't have to do that all the time, right? You could have students do that. For sure. I think that's where a powerful thing could happen as well is the students are already making videos outside of class, right? For entertainment purposes or, or for gaming purposes, putting it on Twitch or YouTube. And so asking them to do a screencast of their knowledge and then imagine that you, you, you teach a subject and instead of having them write a report or take a quiz, you say, okay, I want you to, I want you to create a presentation on your own in Pear Deck or Nearpod and then I want you to screencast your presentation. Uh, and then as the teacher, they, you know, you'd have them drag and drop that screencast into Flipgrid and now you have a community grid of all the students take on the subject. And then you just star or pin the best ones to the top, and boom, now you have a student-created self-made tutorial from the students. You didn't have to do any extra work as the teacher. They're utilizing skills they're already using outside of the classroom, and now you're reaching all the students within the class. And so, you know, talking about class sizes in, in kind of uh, um, in, a, in a closed session just on the issue of class sizes needs to be open much broader. And we have to, you know, grab these little facets and nuggets that we as educators and all you thousands of educators out there listening, you have these great ideas that you're doing. We want to hear them. We want to share these out. We want to post it on the Sons of Technology blog. We want to make sure we bring these up. And so um, I, I kind of want to roll this down a little bit just to just to ensure that that we and our audience are on the same page. The whole purpose. The whole purpose of this class size discussion is students. Everything that we do in our podcast is it goes right back to students, student outcomes, student experience, and student relationships. That's it. What can we do to increase better outcomes for our students, to increase better experiences and motivation for our students, and increase the relationships that we as educators have with our students? So to me, class size boils down 
if you want to take it all the way down to the bare bones, is we want to make sure that educators can still feel that they have a relationship with every single one of their students in their class. That's what we want. And so I kind of want to give a preview of what episode two of our equity trilogy is going to be about. And that is about enrichment activities, right? Activities that happen after school or different different electives where they can really take hold of, of learning in their class. Um, and so before we leave, uh, I would like kind of kind of the last the, the last words, so to speak, uh, from from Kyle and and Corey um, on 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 your thoughts of, of class sizes and then just your take on on what people should take away from this conversation. Well, I think that I mean we need we we need to be able to advocate for ourselves as educators and continue the conversation about lowering class sizes, you know, and really try to convince our legislators out there, national and state, local, whatever it may be, to really look at this and, you know, really start investing in education because, you know, the education has really been getting dumped on over the course of the last 50 years or so. Um, but at the same time, though, knowing that it's not going to happen overnight, we just got to keep on working to do what we do with what we have and just making the best of it for ultimately the most important thing, and that's the students. Yeah, I would agree with Kyle. You know, it's um, we got to have to have some hard conversations with some people much higher than us. Um, but I also agree back to what you said, uh, Kyle, with the, you know, we're not going to be able to change the class sizes immediately. So why not embrace what we have and look at solutions that can help uh, build those relationships with the students and give them that voice um, in a large classroom, find ways to give them that voice, go to conferences, go, you know, out and research things, uh, find that other teacher on campus that's doing some, you know, crazy stuff out there. And then just embrace the fact that you have 35, 40 kids in your room, but how can we build those relationships with those kids and give them that feedback that they so need um, to be successful um, and then yeah have those conversations and say look you know I'm doing great things with 40 can you imagine what I can do with 25 and bring that to your administration awesome and and you know Corey I, I wanted to just hit one last thing before before we, we we leave and sign off for the day and I always say teaching is a collaborative sport right we we win when we work together and so if you're doing it alone you're doing it wrong yep and so you know, I always say walk with the wise and you become wise. So find those teachers on your campus that you can walk with to become better. Find those teachers who, who want to become better and invite them to walk with you. And that's what this podcast is all about. We want to walk with each and every one of you listening as our partner, as our co-partners. We are in this together. We do this podcast because we love students, we love teachers, we love education, and we want to make sure that everybody understands that every single one of you can do a small part. Because when we do it together, right, we start a movement. And when we join together, we create an army. And that's why one of our hashtags is EdTechArmy. Because when we work together, we can battle anything, battle any situation, because we are one. So, you know, Kyle, thank you so much uh, for, for, for being my, my partner in this. Corey, thank you for, so much for being a part of this episode. Uh, and once again, you are so welcome to join every single episode with us as well as a member of Sons of Technology. 
Um, so I just want to want to welcome everybody to uh, continue on our equity trilogy next week when we talk about enrichment activities, which is going to include coding, robotics, esports, uh, string instruments, brass instruments, just everything that students would need to really feel that relationship um, with at least somebody on their campus. So as we sign off, I'm Joe Marquez. Please follow me on at, at on Twitter at Joe Marquez seven zero. Kyle. Uh, Kyle Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Anderson Ed Tech, and then you can also find my blog at www.AndersonEdTech.net. And Corey Coble, you can find me on Twitter at CVR Science Seven. All right, everybody out there listening to us, we just wanted to say thank you so much for being a part of of our journey. Um, don't forget, we do this for the kids. So keep innovating, keep taking risks, ditch that fear, and do something amazing this week. Thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.